This is episode 30 with Dr. Lisa Galia. She has a PhD in neuroscience. And today we're talking about the mommy brain. Uh, the brain, for lack of a better way of putting it, shrinks. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hi, welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast, keeping your motherhood inspired. When I first started brainstorming what topics I really wanted to learn about and to help other mothers learn about was the truth behind that mom brain, that mommy brain. And if you've been pregnant and if you have kids, then you definitely know what I'm talking about. The mom brain is basically when you're pregnant and you start forgetting all sorts of simple things that normally you wouldn't forget, like where you put your keys, who you had to call back, things you had to do at work, little things like that, which can become really annoying. The thing is, before you're pregnant, you might be someone that retains information. You don't need to write everything down. You know, you'll remember it. But then you get pregnant and suddenly can't remember things that you needed to do or people to call or you, you down the stairs and you're like, I have no clue what I was going to get. And you feel ridiculous. With my second pregnancy, it was worse. It was a joke. Really, my partner would say, you're so stupid during this pregnancy. And I said, yes, I know. Oh my gosh, I just have to wait until the, the baby comes out and I'll hopefully get my brain back. And this happens to moms. So I wanted to dig deep and go to the source, go to someone who has been studying this for years to learn what exactly is happening to your brain First, when you're pregnant. Secondly, when you have a newborn, you've, you're in that postpartum period. And even years later, what's interesting about this episode is we cover all three aspects. So even if you're a mother who has adult kids, if your kids are in their 30s even, this episode will be interesting for you. Get ready because this mother, this maternal health brain expert has a long list of credentials that I want to share with you. So who is Dr. Lisa Galea? So she's a Canadian professor in the Department of Psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Health Director of the Graduate Program in Neuroscience and a scientific advisor at the Women's Health Research Institute at the University of British Columbia. Her research investigates specifically how sex hormones influence brain health and disease 
in both females and males. Her goal is to improve brain health for women and men by examining the influence of sex and sex hormones on normal and diseased brain like depression and Alzheimer. She has been a keynote speaker at numerous international conferences over the past 10 years. Uh, she's a distinguished university, university scholar, has won many awards. She has written over 140 scientific papers. Dr. Galia is the chief editor of Finn Front Frontiers in Neuro Neuroendocrinology online magazine that you can find online. She is elected council member of the International Scholarly Committee's Organization for the Study of Sex Differences and International Behavioral Neuroscience Society. So Lisa Galea sits on the advisory board of Institute of Gender and Health at CIHR. She serves on the Adv Advocacy and EDI Committees of Canadian Association for Neuroscience. She was among the first researchers worldwide to study hormonal control of adult neurogenesis and the impact of motherhood on the brain in later life. She's a wife, a mother of two adult kids. She lives in North Vancouver. Listen well. There's some parts the sound isn't great. She gives very helpful tips for your mom brain later in the episode. So make sure not to miss it. And if you enjoy this episode, it's incredibly helpful if you leave a review for the podcast so it reaches more mothers. So go to iTunes, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. It takes like two minutes and that will be amazing. So without further ado, let's listen in on this conversation. Thank you, Lisa, for being on Citrus Love Podcast today. And I am so excited to finally be talking about the mommy brain with you. And this is something we were supposed to record a few months ago, but... Uh, Pandemics <laughs> happen. Yes. And, and travel. I was traveling and, forever, but of yeah. course now I'm not traveling at all. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes uh, things happen and good things out of it, out yeah, of the bad. You have to roll with the punches, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So today I wanted to focus about what us mothers refer to as the mommy brain or brain fog. And you'll be able to clarify is if that is the same thing today. I mean, I've felt it personally during my pregnancy and postpartum and how literally you feel like you have half a brain. Sometimes you can't even remember like essential things. You go to a grocery store and you can't remember what's the two things that you needed or where you put your car keys. Or I remember like my partner would tell me, okay, don't forget you have to pick up this at the post office tomorrow. And I would completely forget like things which I never did beforehand. I was so good and I couldn't understand like, is there a way to make it that we don't feel this way during pregnancy and postpartum? So we're going to talk about all of this goodness in today's episode and if we can actually help rewire our brains. So you focus deeply on the maternal brain and how sex hormones influence brain health and disease in both females and males. What prompted you to focus your research on these specific areas of the brain? 
Ah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, from a very early age, and I think it was from all of this sort of feminist talk in my house. Um, you know, I was born in 1965. I don't like to tell people how old I am, but I'm 55. And so it was kind of a different time. You know, like, I I, I dream a genie and Gilligan's <laughs> mm-hmm. like Island was on TV. And, you know, there was a sort of a strong sense that, uh, you know, fe- you know, women were different than men. And, uh, you know, boys and girls are different and, and not always able to do the same things and I I just remember thinking why would that be that doesn't make any sense and I wrote down I was a list of things that I wanted to do with my life and one of them was you know find out differences between boy brains and girl brains (laughs) so so from a very early age I was just fascinated by it and pretty much every experiment every uh, research that I've been involved in has been involved around either sex differences what 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 might we see differently in, in, in males versus females and then because of what probably as as one person put it, uh, the ultimate sex difference is, is that, you know, in most species, females are the ones giving birth. And so that's what also led me to the maternal brain and also having children myself and experiencing the same kinds of things that you were talking about. I, I was just really taken aback by how uh, different I felt and I really wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. This is what I read in your research, that brain studies are done mostly on the male brain. And I thought that was odd because there's females as well. Wouldn't yeah. people think that they're they're not different because we don't think the same, we don't look the same? I, um, yeah, you you think right? We're fifty percent of the population. Why aren't we fifty percent of the research subjects or, mm-hmm. or studies that are out there? Uh, yeah. So historically, um, it, it's been mostly it's very male biased literature. I also think that when you have more men researchers or male researchers you know that they're going to study what they are interested in and so at no fault of them they they tend to be more interested in that interest them about being male rather than you know the kinds of questions that a female researcher might be more interested in and there was also this idea that females were complicated to study because of our hormones you know we have monthly fluctuations in hormones and they do all these destructive things you know while there is some good literature around that it turns out that that um, women are not any more and females are not any more variable than men or males are and in fact while we have monthly changes in our hormone levels uh, men have daily changes in their hormone levels so one of the jokes I tell when I give talks is, you know, who's more hormonal now? <laughs> Daily changes, that's much more erratic. So people say, oh, females are too erratic to study, which is just nonsense. And a, a good science friend of mine, uh, Rebecca Shansky, has written a great article about the sort of sexism in science and, and calling female hormones a problem. I mean, female hormones are not a problem. They're something to study. And, and uh, there are just as many male hormones out there that are, quote unquote, a problem study. I, I don't think anyone that has gone through pregnancy and the postpartum would argue that hormones don't influence our brain and our, and our health. Um, yeah. And, and maybe sometimes it's harder for, for men to understand that, but everyone's gone through puberty. You know, I remember how dramatic that was, that was <laughs> years ago for me. So I think it's in many ways very easy for people to understand that hormones can have such a profound effect on our, our minds and brains, given the fact puberty, pregnancy, and postpartum alone. Mm-hmm. Are there still a few women researchers you work with, or it's getting more 50-50? Well, it really depends on the discipline. Okay. 
So I, I would not say it's any, anything close to 50-50, but, but in some fields it, it would be, or it might even be more like, so nursing, for example, uh, yeah. physical therapy, there's more, tend to be more uh, women researchers, but neuroscience, the field I'm in, I would, I would say it's probably around 20 to 30%. And neuroscience is just a study of the brain, but uh, mm-hmm. psychology though, I also work a little bit in psychology and, and that tends to be closer to 50-50. So I read that you were one of the first researchers worldwide to study the impact of motherhood on the brain later in life. What message are you trying to send to the world and to mothers with your research on the maternal brain? Yeah, I think the message I'm trying to say is that, and I don't think that this is going to be surprising to anyone that would listen to your show, and that is that uh, motherhood causes profound effects in terms of our body and our mind. I think, you know, once you become a mom, you're always a mom. Um, I mean, my kids are my tw- uh, in their 20s, and I, I certainly don't feel any less of a mother than I did when they were, you know, two and four. <laughs> this is just mm-hmm. a part of our lives now. And while there, there's, first of all, not too many studies just studying the maternal brain to begin with, but most of the studies that are out there are studying it in the short term. And, you know, we decided to look a little bit longer to see if there were any other effects. The message is not that no one's going to um, not have children because it could affect their brain in a different way, you know, negatively or positively. That's not something that I I wish to change. But what I I want physicians and people to understand is that it does change our physiology and may, and there's some little bit of evidence for it, may change our response to drugs and therapeutics later on in life. And that's important for us to be aware of it. Probably many of your listeners, listeners will know that if you have gestational diabetes, diabetes, you're more likely to have diabetes later on in life. Hmm. And they suffer from hypertension during pregnancy, you're also more likely to suffer from some cardiovascular uh, diseases later on in life too. And I think those are really important sort of barometers, right? It's like the canary in the coal mine. It's like, you know, you get, you, you're going to be more susceptible to these diseases. And Diabetes and cardiovascular diseases are no joke, and it's important for women to be aware of the risk because then you can mitigate against these risks. Uh, another one could be dementia, which um, we may or may not talk about, but uh, there, there does seem to be some complicated risk with multiple children. If you had uh, four or five or more with increased risk to develop dementia later on in life. You know, I'm not telling people don't have five children. <laughs> in fact, if I liked being pregnant, I would have had 20 or more. <laughs> but, um, and if I had infinite number and money, I guess that's also the Problem. Nobody's saying that. They're just saying, hey, you have a greater risk for these diseases. So uh, why not do some lifestyle changes or do some changes earlier on so you can mitigate against these risks? Mm-hmm. Your research paper, which for the listeners, it was available online. The April 2019 titled The Long and Short-Term Effect of Motherhood on the Brain. And you talked a lot about the gray matter. And that's an, it's an important part of the changes occurring in a mother's brain. So first, can you tell us what is gray matter and what's the important role it has for us women and once we get pregnant? So the brain is uh, made up of white, what we call white matter and gray matter. And white matter is it's a fiber tract. You can think of that as uh, highways. And the gray matter is our cells. And so you can think of that as sort of the cars. So you need both, right? It's, it's not a perfect analogy what I just gave you, but uh, it'll, it'll sort of work. But it's the cells in the, in the brain. And 
to spread information, you need both the cells, both those cars, but you also need the highways. You need to be able to get, get the information going. So uh, it turns out that there are pretty large changes in terms of cell numbers uh, across a number of different regions of the brain. During pregnancy, it looks like, and this might not be surprising to some of us, it looks like uh, the brain, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, shrinks. It's not a dramatic shrink. It's about six to 8% of the total uh, brain volume that shrinks. And then it comes back, uh, bounces back about six, by six months postpartum. But some of the changes when you look deeper uh, into the brain seem to be relatively, do seem to be lasting a long time. And some of your listeners might be scared or like, oh no, I'm never going to get my brain back. But I want to make another point clear, which is just because you might be losing cells doesn't mean that that's necessarily bad for your memory. It might seem counterintuitive, but it could mean that the cells that are there are much more efficient. So, uh, and it could be something like, if you think about it as reducing the noise in your brain, and, and definitely there have been studies where they've looked at this reduction in gray matter and across a wide variety of areas, and they find that it's actually um, related in a, to a beneficial way in terms of maternal, what they call maternal attachment. So, you know, you maybe loosely think of that as maternal bonding. So even though there's this reduction in gray matter, it's actually more beneficial for the relationship between mother and child. Would you see women that have experienced postpartum depression that their gray matter shrinks even more? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, the only evidence that we have for that so far is in animal models to show that it does even have more of an effect to reduce that gray matter, particularly in the, in the area of the brain known as the hippocampus, which is my, uh, you know, my obsessive area. Everybody has an obsession. So we do know in animal models that if we, you know, quote unquote, give them postpartum depression, that you see more gray matter loss in the hippocampus than in uh, an animal that does not have postpartum depression. In terms of humans, there is very little data out there. I can't really think of uh, for that, but we know that people that have depression will also show these same gray matter changes in the hippocampus. So it wouldn't be surprising if we saw the same thing in women with postpartum depression. Basically, is it all these hormones once we're pregnant that changes the cell production in our, our brain? Yeah, no, exactly. So, so in the hippocampus, uh, we actually see uh, decreases right away in cell production. So sometimes even people call that like the birth. And I think there's another paper called the birth of a new brain. But we see reductions quite uh, soon. It's usually by mid-pregnancy. And it's maintained uh, in, a, in a rat. It's maintained for quite a while postpartum. But it starts to sort of even out uh, around when we say, consider that weaning. So when the pups leave the nest. So it's uh, much earlier than uh, would happen in humans. <laughs> I, I kind of think of that though as an equivalent time to say a five-year-old when a five-year-old does no longer wakes you up anymore on Saturday or Sunday morning to get the breakfast, they'll go and get cereal by themselves mm -hmm. and sit and watch TV or something and let you sleep. I, I remember that being such a such a release of freedom. <laughs> the, the kitchen was a mess when I got up, but but I actually got an extra hour of sleep. Maybe that means I was a bad mom because <laughs> I didn't get up with them. But uh, you know, I, I roughly think of that as the same because there is a little bit of evidence. So in terms of sort of memory, 
and baby bear, that baby frog, baby brain frog, we, we see it in, in rats too. So we see it in the later parts of pregnancy and in the early postpartum, but it actually comes back and, and it actually becomes more beneficial uh, right at that time of weaning. So right when those pups have left the nest, so, you know, sort of the equivalent of a, a five years later. I, I don't have any great data to back up that the same thing happens in humans, but it feels like it. <laughs> I have to say, it feels mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, as soon as my uh, children were a little bit older, that I was just much more efficient at getting. So are you saying that our brain shrinks and then it can feel that it stays that way up until, let's say, our youngest is five? <laughs> yeah. We don't, so I don't know anything for sure about our brain, you know, five years later. But what I can tell you is that memory-wise, it looks like there's work in animal models, but also a little bit in humans as well, is that women and rat moms that have had uh, their litters actually get a little better than um, rats that have never had children. And there's a little bit of evidence in the human uh, world that the same kind of phenomenon might exist. And I I picked the five-year-old, but I'm just guessing there in terms of when that sort of switch happens. But I just want to assure your listeners that that brain fog isn't permanent. (laughs) might feel like it's going to be permanent, but it's not permanent. Certainly, you know, depending on how many children you have and how many stressors you have, of course, we we all get really super distracted. But if you actually test your memory, you'll see that it's it's not deficient once that immediate postpartum period is. It should go back to normal eventually and it can even be a bit better. Better, yeah, yeah. There's some evidence that that it can be even better. That we're, you know, that's that idea of super mom might really be true. And it, mm. obviously, it's not all forms of memory because that would be super awesome. <laughs> but uh, you know, just just cer- certain types. Uh, and and as far as I know, no one's looked at this yet. But um, or my best guess would be it would be something like what they call perspective memory that moms would be very good at. And what do I mean by that? I mean for that's memory for future events. And so a, a good example of that would be who in your household is the one that keeps track of dent appointments and doctor appointments and you know, eventually soccer games and ballet and recitals. It's it's generally the, the mom in the household that is um, keeping track of all these future events and doing a very, very good job of that. So that sort of perspective memory is probably a very good target for um, improving the super mom brain, improving the brain. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you have one child or four, uh, your brain should not be smaller with more children. Oh, and I didn't say that. No, did I? Because <laughs> mm. I was like, what happens if you have a couple of kids? No, and that's also a really good question. And, uh, you know, not that many people study the maternal brain, but I can tell you uh, there is um, some data from somebody named Lara Glenn looked at uh, during pregnancy. So first time, second time, or third time. And with each pregnancy, uh, it actually gets a little worse uh, in terms of that baby fog. But remember, no one has really looked at is that 
uh, because you also now have young children in the house that you're taking care of as well as being pregnant. It, you know, there are many other stressors in your life and stress will also impact memory as well. So it does seem like multi, what we call multi-parity uh, will influence your memory, both in the short term and long term. But the papers that I've looked at, the research that's looked at a memory long term with multiple pregnancies or looking at the amount of parity, that's what we call like how many children you've had. There is a finite limit, right? So that once you get to, you know, five or more, I think I've already said, uh, you have a greater risk to develop dementia. Hmm, Again, that could be for many reasons, right? It could be stress, it could be um, financial stress, it could Mm, be... Yeah. In your research, you also mentioned about some short-term effects of the shrinking gray matter and some long-term effects like Alzheimer, obesity, metabolic system, and the short-term effect like depression, postpartum, psychosis, OCD. You you didn't mention those short-term effects except for the postpartum depression. So would that be linked to the attachment to the baby? Absolutely, it's linked to attachment, but what, whether one causes one or the other is up for debate. Um, what my specialty, as you mentioned at the beginning, is uh, hormones. So I would call myself a neuroendocrinologist, which just means I'm really interested in hormones in the brain. And so, but to the fault that I'm going to think that it's almost always hormones that are involved. And there's some good evidence to support that. So what we haven't mentioned is all the physiological changes that occur during pregnancy. And I mean, it's a huge amount of, uh, quote unquote, burden to carry the fetus in your body. I'm just kidding. It's not a parasite. It's a lovely, wonderful thing. So hormones increase and they increase very dramatically. Uh, Our good friend uh, estradiol is about 200 times normal levels by week 20 of pregnancy and then 300 times normal levels by week 30 of pregnancy. So you can imagine those are really high levels than we'd ever see at any other point in our lives. And as many other hormones that also increase very dramatically. But also uh, cardiac output, so our heart is working harder. It's about um, 50 to 100% harder. Same with our lung capacity, it decreases by 50%. Uh, the amount of blood volume, which comes with uh, the heart working harder, uh, is about four extra liters of fluid in our body that we're pushing around uh, by the end of pregnancy. So you can imagine all of these sort of physiological effects that are necessary in order to carry the baby to term cause a toll on the body. And so I don't, I don't know why it would be so surprising to anyone that that toll on our body might also affect brain. And so in the short term, that sort of withdrawal from these very high levels of hormones may trigger some of these uh, mental disorders. And in fact, the risk for first-time hospital admission for a mental disorder is, is quite high in the postpartum. And again, really the immediate postpartum. So it's uh, generally in that first three months that you see these you know, high risk. So something like obsessive compulsive disorder is actually three times more likely uh, in that postpartum period. And this is for someone who's never had any uh, issues before. Uh, you know, I, I understand that's quite scary and, and scary to think about, but I, but I also think it's important for you know, the public to be aware because we need more support for that. You know, we need more, um, a lot of these cases seem to go undiagnosed because, uh, you know, our physicians who are also, you know, doing the best they can um, aren't necessarily screening for 
uh, some of these mental disorders that can occur. And so, um, you know, you might say, I'm really tired. I can't, I don't seem to be able to cope. And uh, a physician might just sort of brush that off as just a normal occurrence of having children because it does happen to all of us. We are all tired mm-hmm. after we've given birth, but for some women, it's, it's much more than that. And, if it, you, know, I, you know, I could go on because some of these anxiety feelings are very scary and it would be scary to admit out loud. And so uh, I do think it's underdiagnosed, but it's really important to get that support uh, during the postpartum period so that um, we can mitigate against some of these effects. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that the, on balance, and I, given that I'm biased towards hormones, but I would say on, bi- uh, on balance, it does seem to be the effects of pregnancy and that withdrawal, uh, and particularly those hormones that might be causing some, might be making some women more susceptible to some of these mental health disorders in the short term. For the stages of the temporary memory loss uh, during pregnancy, is it like a slow process every week, bit by bit? um, You have this shrinkage. (laughs) I want to get specific. (laughs) Like when when is it the worst? Yes, it's the worst. At I mean, the graph that I'm thinking of is slowly declines uh, across pregnancy and that starts to come back right at after giving birth. Uh, you know, it gets region specific, but if you're talking about the whole total brain, yeah, it does sort of have the stepwise progression getting worse and worse as time goes on. But remember, worse, it doesn't, you know, worse, uh, I shouldn't say worse, but it, it, it uh, decreases little by little over the weeks. And in terms of memory, uh, and it's mostly verbal memory that uh, when, when you actually bring women into the laboratory and test where it's verbal memory that they tend to have issues with not all types of memory, uh, perhaps some surprise, it feels like everything, but it's not uh, all forms of memory particularly women suffer from perspective memory problems like future events. One of the big things I struggled with anecdotally was finding my car in the parking lot. I could never find Oh, me too. It was just so, like it was, and it was comical. Like I, I would come out and think, oh my gosh, how did I do this again? It's funny you say that because that was exactly one example I wrote on my sheet. I would go into a shopping mall and come back and I had no clue where I parked. I remember once I walked around, I'm like, this is insane. This is insane. Like I'm never going to find it. (laughs) I remember crying because I was like, I I had a two-year-old and I couldn't find my car and I was going to be late for daycare. And I know I have a problem. I should write it down. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the evidence suggests that that kind of spatial impairment in our memory is related to whether we're pregnant with a boy versus a girl, which I find really fascinating. There's there's only one study as far as I know on that subject. Um, And it turns out if you're pregnant with a girl, it's worse. (laughs) Yes. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I wish I had more information, but again, because not many people yet, there are very few studies that have been looking at, uh, you know, how much uh, the sex of the child matters in terms of some of these effects. But in terms of memory, yeah, it's, uh, it seems, at least with, according to that one study, that uh, people that are pregnant with a girl can do a little worse on these tests than uh, people that are pregnant with a boy. All studies suggest that it's the third trimester that's the worst. Um, and as we already talked about, that it can get worse with each each pregnancy in terms of the verbal memory loss. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not all memory. It's going to come back, and <laughs> it could come back better than ever. 
like no. some time, right? Sometimes you need some time. It's not going to come back right away. As so many times at the early postpartum, you're you know you're lactating, you're breastfeeding. That requires a lot of energy, so it's it's not so surprising. And I mean, I think in terms of evolution, kind of makes sense. So kind of like your body signaling you to just you know take it easy. This is the time in your life to take it easy and give yourself a little bit of a break. So we're not sure yet if 100% having a boy fetus makes you a little bit smarter than having a girl fetus. Fortunately not. We don't know. Like I said, there's only, uh, as far as I know, that one study, Uh, but it's fascinating. There's another study that, you know, I told you about the risk of dementia with with having lots of children, but there's one other study where they, it wasn't dementia, but there are signs in the brain that point to possible dementia or you're going down that road. And and you can look at this, unfortunately, uh, post-death, so post-mortem studies. Uh, but they've, they've looked at this and also looked to see whether it mattered if a woman had been pregnant with a boy or a girl. And it turns out that if uh, women were pregnant with a boy, they were less likely to show these signs of dementia in the brain, which again, I find really fascinating. Hmm. Um, and I should mention there are some a couple of studies coming out of the UK looking at their sort of measure of brain aging, and I'm putting that in quotes because it's completely clear what they mean by brain aging. But they have a number of different parameters that they put together. What they find in their examples is that women with children are uh, less likely to show brain aging. I, and I, again, I think that's really fascinating. So I know that sounds maybe contradictory um, because I've said, oh, if you have lots of ch- children, you're more, you have a greater increased risk for dementia. But most people aren't having five or more children. So in, in their case, in their sample, that they and this is thousands of people in the UK, um, they've, they've shown that just having children um, seems to sort of slow or reduce the signs of brain aging. Is this something on your list to, to research uh, later on? <laughs> um, yes, maybe. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I suspect that there's many factors at play. Uh, one of the suspicious things on my mind that we're, we're looking at is the immune system and how that might play a role, which I think it makes some sense because, you know, your immune system, they still don't really know how your immune system adapts while we're, while we're pregnant. Um, and it has to, there has to be some kind of change because your uh, body is allowing this foreign material to, to grow, right? And there should be some uh, differences between whether in the immune system, whether you're pregnant with a girl or a boy, because the boy has uh, XY chromosomes and the girls obviously have XX, which match the mom. But women can create these antigens, these compounds that can interfere with the growth of a boy. Um, and again, not, not so much research, but I find that really fascinating. And the other thing I find really fascinating that may or may not give your listeners comfort, but it gave me a lot of comfort because like I said, I love being a mom. <laughs> even to 20 year olds. And what happens while the baby is growing inside of you is that even though, you know, the placenta is nice and cushy in there and it should sort of keep all those cells in there, it doesn't. And there is a little bit of leakage. And so what that means is that your baby's cells actually seep into your body. And if you took my blood, because I had a son, some of, some of those cells in there would be XY and they would be from my son when I was pregnant with my son, which I, I find strange, but also strangely comforting that I'm still carrying him around with me, <laughs> which also might be why, partly why we why we all feel like once we're a mom, we're always a mom. Those wow. cells are with you for forever. <laughs> Same with the, the girl cells too. They'll be there too. They're just harder to detect because we're, we're both XXs. 
Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit more about the dementia aspect. Mothers are more at risk of developing dementia later on in life. Yeah, so um, I, I know that's going to be scary and I don't want to scare anyone, but I think we need to just be aware that um, because uh, having children does change our physiology and changes it long term. So we have lower levels of estrogens across our menstrual cycle after we've given birth. Um, as an example, uh, we are at greater risk, as I said, to develop diabetes if you've had gestational diabetes and some cardiovascular disease too, if you've had some hypertension during pregnancy. And, and in fact, diabetes, hypertension, uh, obesity, metabolic disorder, they're also all related to Alzheimer's disease as we age. And so uh, all of these kind of are like a sort of perfect storm, I guess, that you could say for um, a recipe for our increased risk for dementia. So it could be all of these things uh, playing a role. And we know that exercise and dietary interventions are probably are earlier in, in, in life are probably a, a good way to try to mitigate some of this risk for dementia. But um, it's not clear why, you know, we see a greater risk and not all studies find that there's a greater risk to develop a dementia. So we can't really know if we'll be at risk or not until later on. Exactly. We don't know. I think if you had, you know, four or less children, it's less, less likely. Um, but if you had gestational diabetes, if you had hypertension, um, I, I think those are sort of signals that you could have complications later on in life. And what you can do to mitigate against those complications is exercise daily. Um, and what's enough exercise is, is up for a debate, but some physical therapists would say as much as little as 10 minutes a day is good. It's supposed to be 150 mm-hmm. minutes a week. Uh, but, you know, just start with something small that you can do. Um, and, and keep that up and, and keep up a fairly healthy diet. And that should really offset any of the increased risks that you've had if you've had um, children or if they've had these complications during pregnancy that might increase your risk. So while we can't ever know, I mean, it would be great if we knew that we had a higher risk. Uh, there are genetic causes of Alzheimer's disease, but it, it doesn't account for a big percentage of people that get uh, Alzheimer's disease. It's hard. And, you know, our genes are not destiny, just increases our risk. So what can we do as mothers, women that are listening that might be pregnant or are pregnant? Are there any things we can do to help with this loss of gray matter? Apart from exercise and healthy diet, is there anything else that can help? The other thing that I would encourage moms and pregnant people to do is just, you know, whatever gives them stress relief. So social support, I think, is really important. So whatever social group that you have, whether it's people in the same position as yourself or your family, just make sure you have all those sort of security blankets and security um, measures close to you. That's another one. I know it sounds trite to say exercise and and diet, but they it, they really do work. Exercise is probably the biggest thing that works, and any kind of ways to reduce your stress, but also sleep, which I know can be very elusive when you have when the baby comes out. But you know when you can try to get at that sleep because it's it's really important for your overall brain health. Mm-hmm. I know some people they do crossword puzzles or Sudoku oh, yeah. for yes. their brain. Does that help? <laughs> um. I mean, so, the, you know, the data is very mixed on that. But yes, I think any kind of, so usually what I say is exercise your brain and your body. 
I mean, the better evidence is exercising your body. If you have some kind of movement disorder that, uh, you know, you can't run, that's fine. Walk. If walking is too tough, even doing what we call armchair aerobics, you know, you're doing like little weights while you're sitting there really also help as well. Um, yoga, anything like that helps. Uh, but exercising your mind can also help. Uh, there's less evidence or like good evidence that that helps. But um, I think it's better if it's something that you really care about. So, uh, uh, you know, Sudoku, I don't know how many people care about it, but, um, <laughs> but something like, uh, you know, if you're really interested in art history, you know, learn a lot about that. Or if you're really interested in, you know, nature, learn about that, like find a program that you like or a book or right now of course there are a lot of uh, museums and I think of tours online and so you can really read a lot about history and art and uh, I'm sure science museums as well Mm -hmm. Um, so that language learning a new language is really um, very beneficial but it's 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 all those things it's interacting with people uh, reducing your stress whatever way that is and uh, exercise sleep yeah that's a lot of good suggestions to keep in mind So I just have one last question. I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. So keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you energized and inspired throughout your mom journey? I mean, for me, I mean, I tried to, and maybe it's because I, I was a working mom. I know this is going to sound crazy and some of your listeners were completely get mad and throw the radio around the room, but I, I found them stress reducing. I, they were just so funny to me. And some days I didn't enjoy spending time with them, but <laughs> mostly I did because I guess I didn't get to spend it as much with them. But I, I'd, I'd say my number one thing to get me through those hard times was, was humor. Just trying to find the humor in things. Like when my toddler was breaking down because, you know, it was the, this is the worst day <laughs> in my life because, you know, I gave him a bread cup instead of a blue cup. And I, I just remember saying, if this is the worst day in your life, you've got a pretty good life, my friend. <laughs> and uh, we used to sing to them, you know, when they were having a tantrum, you, you can't, the Rolling Stones song, you can't always get what you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So much so, so to this point in life, they just cannot stand that song. <laughs> but it used to make me laugh every time we'd sing it. So I think humor is good. Finding also being able to laugh, obviously, with your kids. Eventually, they will laugh with you. And uh, it's really an amazing thing to be able to share those, those moments. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys.